Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 303 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, coming to you from Austin, Texas. It's been a crazy week here with ice falling and trees falling and power out and all sorts of crazy things. So I hope all of my Austin listeners are doing okay. I am coming to you today. Very excited about my guest for the day because I get to talk to my sister, Lori Smiley. She trains in my virtual podcast group, The Rogue Renegades, and I've been working with her since 2018 in a coach capacity and just recently smashed a big goal of hers that she's had for a long time, which is that she earned her first Boston qualifier. So as her coach and brother, I'm super proud. And she's on here to talk about 10 things, five physical and five mental that were keys to her getting her goal. I actually don't know what the 10 things are. I've asked her to keep those to herself so that I can react in real time with her on the podcast. So she'll be on in just a second to talk through those 10 things. So we'll get to that in a moment. Quickly, before we jump in with Lori, I want to highly recommend a couple of new running memoirs that are coming out. One, Kara Goucher's The Longest Race. I've had the opportunity to read an advanced copy of that. I've also gotten to read Des Linden's new book, Choosing to Run, which tells the story of her Boston 2018 victory while also weaving in the story of her life. Both are amazing books. And one thing I learned about the book writing and book selling process and talking with both of them is that pre-order sales are really important because they go into your first week of sales once the book is launched and really help you get to potentially get on that New York Times bestseller list, which makes a massive difference in other people being able to find the book. So if you haven't already, go ahead and go pre-order Kara's book, Dez's book, do them a favor in getting the word out about their books so that other people can find it and I promise you won't regret it. Also want to thank my sponsor for this episode, Athletic Greens. I'll be talking about them more mid-episode and giving you an offer code in a moment. All right, let's jump in to my conversation with Lori Smiley, my sister and new Boston qualifier. Here we go. Welcome, Lori Smiley, to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a little cold here, but I'm doing great. Yeah, I think it's cold everywhere right now. All hunkered down here in Texas where we're not used to ice and snow. But fortunately, the airwaves work, and so here we are. As I mentioned in my intro, I'm excited to have you on, not just because I like your story as a running coach, but also because you're my sister. So that's kind of cool. We've been able to develop this joint interest in this sport, and it's fun to coach you. So we'll talk more about those details as we get into it, about what that dynamic has been like. But first of all, just want to start with a little bit on your sporting history giving context for the group, not just about the running, but I know you started in a different sport, obviously. So give some context there on your sporting history, and then let's then talk about the running background. Well, I spent most of my young life as a gymnast, and a gymnast that was much more of a power gymnast than an endurance gymnast. So at the end of floor routines, I would be out of breath and dying and had every coach that ever coached me tried to get my endurance to where it was better and it just never worked for one reason or the other. 
I stopped doing gymnastics after a pretty bad knee injury in 10th grade and thought I would focus in other areas. And so I did that. Then through the years as college and even as a young mom um, in 20s and I tried to become a runner many times. My husband ran and did, he did a half Ironman at one point and I was wanting to spend more time with him. So I was trying to start running. And about the fourth time I attempted to run, I found out about the run walk method. And so I did run walk for about four years, just knowing that if I did that and continued it, I would stay with the sport, probably wouldn't get hurt. And so that's what I did for about four years. I did two half marathons, run, walk method, and had some health challenges that I overcame and then decided I wanted to do a marathon because I had a healthy body. And that's when I started marathoning and did that without a coach, even though my brother <laughs> was a running coach, did three three of those on my own and progressed from nearly a five-hour marathon to a 440 marathon to a 410 marathon all on my own without any speed work just basically running building aerobic endurance and not even running a great number of miles but after that I decided I wanted to be able to get that sub four and that's when I decided to enlist the help of my awesome brother (laughs) and uh, become a renegade which is our internet training group and that's where we are. That was in 2018. Yeah, I. It's funny because I remember when you you started running at one maybe the first stint in college, and I think that was about the time I started my journey. So I remember doing some runs together back then when we were in our early 20s. For context, you're older than me by about two and a half years. But um, but yeah, so you were a little older. I'd gotten into it at that point. We, I was also getting into it, so we did some runs around our home in the Dallas area together then, but then kind of went on separate paths. Obviously I got very deep into it. You were off and on. And even when you restarted, I think you were a little bit afraid to ask me about it. So we had a few conversations about the training programs you were pulling online, but not a lot of depth there. And so I've always been curious about your thought process around that. Was that because you didn't think you wanted my help at that point. You didn't think you were serious enough to ask a coach. What was your thought I, process then? I didn't think I was a real runner. I didn't feel like a real runner uh, for a long time. Even after I'd done a couple half marathons, I didn't feel like I was really a runner. Um, I had to prove to myself, I guess, not to you, obviously, but to myself that I was a real runner. You remember when you started to own that title? When I took ownership of feeling like I was a real, real runner. Yep. It it probably wasn't till after being with the Renegades for maybe a year or two. <laughs> I was always sort of back of the pack, or at least middle of the pack, and didn't didn't feel like a real runner for a long time. It is also kind of absurd to talk about a pack in a virtual context because I don't think the group really operates that way, but I know how psychologically you could feel that way. Yes. There are people in that group that do amazing things and 
I wasn't sure that I really belonged. But eventually you did take ownership of that. And I think that's some, one of the things we'll talk to you, but today really to cut to the chase, we're chatting because you got a big goal. I'm not even, I'm not even sure when the goal really truly manifested itself. So I do want to talk about that, but ultimately you are now a Boston qualifier from close to a five hour marathon or you've now run the BQ for your age, which is 350, but you've run under that plenty of buffer 345. So spoiler alert on that. And I think the cool, one of the cool things about the journey is the following the mental belief that has built in you as I've watched from the outside. And of course, team has a big contribution to that, but we're going to talk about all those pieces. How did you build the physical side, the training elements in from pulling your internet plan to actually working in our group to also the mental side and the progression to actually believing that it was possible. So I think that's plenty of context. Let's jump in. You've got a list of 10 things, five physical training things, five mental. I haven't seen the list because I wanted to react in real time. We're going to go through one at a time, but I think the cool thing about what I anticipate this list to represent is that it's going to be a list that anybody can think about and use towards tackling whatever their goal might be, whether that be get a Boston qualifier, run a certain time, get a PR, maybe just finish a first half marathon or marathon. And so I think these are going to be universal lessons, which is going to be the power of it. So let's jump in. You've got the floor, you lead and I'll react. Number one. All right. Number one, physical change that I made. And it was probably the most significant piece to getting this goal for me was I slowed down. And I know that's not, <laughs> you're smiling probably because you oh, yeah. know that that's what you preach all day, every day. And, and you've talked to me about it, but I was reading Matt Fitzgerald's book earlier last year, run like a pro, even if you're slow. And he talks about running all your efforts, your easy paced runs at a comfortable pace. And for some reason, the word comfortable struck a chord in a different way. He talks about letting that pace fluctuate. So if you're going up a hill and it starts to feel hard, then just slow down. And I think I've never really thought about runs in that context where if it's supposed to be easy and you're starting to get hot or it's supposed to be easy and you're climbing a big hill, keep it easy, which means slow down. You're not ever supposed to look at your watch on an easy run, but especially I think for keeping it in that easy pace, I started to look at my heart rate a lot more and started to notice at what point on an easy run, it started to get out of, for me, if it gets above 150, that means it's a little bit too much effort for me. And that's a different number for everyone. So I think if you kind of start paying attention to your heart rate, but keeping it easy and, and keeping that word comfortable in mind allows your brain to make those little micro changes to where if you're comfortable at slower paces, then you can be comfortable, which translates into more efficiency at faster paces. And so I think that that was a big one. And it required, it required sort of trust on my part um, in what you've been telling me all these years, but I didn't have anything to lose at that point. I feel like I had tried running easy paces that maybe were just a little bit on the other side of easy, maybe a little bit too hard for easy. I tried pushing it all the time 
and that hadn't worked. So what did I really have to lose? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So that I was like, I'm just going to do it for this year. I decided that about last February. I said, I'm just going to do it. And I always had a little devil on my shoulder telling me that I ran too slow all the time. I was always afraid. I was always asking you, are you sure this is not too slow? My easy paces really haven't changed much at all since I've been seriously training five years. About 1030, today I did an easy run. It was like 1035 pace. And that's 1040, 1045. Maybe I was running too hard when I first started. Yep. But my easy paces really haven't changed in five years. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I know more or be, you know, beyond 12 months ago, you embraced the, the philosophy well before that. I think you know, early in your renegade years, you, you realized that we were onto something with that or I was onto something with that. But at the same time, it feels like you, you really let it take hold of your training in the last year to the point of not worrying about it because it's both there's this physical need to feel like you should be going faster to get faster to run Boston qualifier. But then there's also that mental need that taps your ego that says, if I'm not running a certain pace, then I don't deserve certain goals. And I know you wrestle with both, but talk about that surrender and, and the evolution both of, how your paces may have evolved or changed and, and, or how that looked on different runs. And then also the mental side, how you really surrendered and embraced the idea. Well, the mental surrender is going to come later, I think. <laughs> okay. But, fair enough. Uh, as far I don't want to spoil fair it, uh, but as far as the easy pace, I don't even think it's um, even as much an ego thing as it's, this shouldn't take me this long. I've got somewhere to be. I need to hurry up. And I, and I think that, that hurrying up, um, it helps. I stopped working this year. The COVID finally got me. I was a personal trainer and it just, with all the restrictions at the hospital where I work and everything, having not a job to get to or anywhere I had to be, allowed it because it allowed me to slow down even more because there was not a time crunch anymore. But I think the biggest part of it was it just takes me so long sometimes to run an easy run. It, it, you know, I would say to myself, it shouldn't take me this long. It shouldn't still take me this long. And I think that's where you get yourself into trouble when you start telling yourself you should do this or you shouldn't do that. Yep. There's no, I think I really finally believe you that there's no too slow on a warm up. There's no too slow on a cool down. You know, if you, if you get to the point in a run that you feel tired, well, that's it. There's no more physiological benefit to running a long run. If you're just, you're gassed and you're just out there suffering to suffer. So I think that, that, that intellectual piece was the biggest help that this this thing is going to make me more efficient. It's going to make me faster if I can relax even more. Does yeah, that make and sense? It, and, yeah, and people struggle with that time crunch, and those things are real for people. And so one of the things I always remind people that you know it's better to have the effort right. Yes. On a given run, and shorten it by time if you need to, or or fit it into the time that you have, versus running faster just to hit a mileage number that might be on your schedule. 
So don't ever compromise the effort just to try to hit a number from a mileage standpoint, because then you're starting to get to a point where you're wasting that run. And, and if you have a time window, take the time window you have, but stay in the right efforts. Effort is king. That's what you say, right? Right. So relatedly, I would imagine you probably felt a difference in terms of how you could invest your energy into quality workouts, how you recovered. So talk about that piece of it. Absolutely. That was a, the number one biggest difference. And the I'm going to talk about it more in the mental side, but I hit more quality workouts in the correct place with the correct amount of energy, with the correct amount of rest time than I ever have. And that, that, that slowing down for the rest of the time enabled me to run faster in those quality workouts and uh, obviously not be so tired all the time. Yep. Big payoff. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to know that though, until you just do it, <laughs> you got to do it. <laughs> right. It's hard to trust it until you actually feel that difference. Right. The other, but if, been training for the same pay I've, I've been training for the same goals same training paces for three three marathons three years and if everything else doesn't work you have to be willing to change something <laughs> huge yeah so. i think it's important you mentioned that those training paces really haven't evolved and really in, in some cases they're probably slower than they used to be and that's okay. That's an important part of the process. I can tell you my training paces for easy runs are slower than they've ever been, but because I've fully embraced it as well. And I've learned to that, you know, as I've aged, I've actually needed to slow down a little bit on recovery runs in order to balance it all. So when people, but people all the time want to use that as some sort of barometer or metric for improvement when it's, it's the wrong metric. I think that's really important that you say that because I think the, the the right metric is how do you feel afterwards? Because this fall when I was doing 20 milers to prepare for Houston, I've never felt that good after a 20 miler, 18 miler. I've never had energy the rest of the day. I'm, it's kind of a joke. Usually I'm in a bad mood on long run days because I'm so tired. So yep. I think a better metric uh for success is how do you feel afterwards? Yeah. And then ultimately how does it go on race day and the results in this case speak for itself. So that's number one, slow down. The number one thing I probably preach on this podcast. So thanks for validating that. What's and number it's probably the number one thing people probably don't listen to. <laughs> right. You say it, right. So, so if your hard-headed so sister can listen, then got the bo a Boston qualifier speaking here. So everybody should listen. What's number two? Number two is I changed my nutrition, and so that's something that's very personal from person to person. But I think if you are feeling like your nutrition plan isn't working, then it's probably not. I had a marathon last fall where I felt like I just completely powered down. And there were other factors too, but I just didn't feel like I had what I needed. And it happened also in a half marathon I did this fall. So I started looking, I was using Ucan um, and then like gels or, or blocks, but basically carb, a carb heavy fuel. And so I started researching and looking into some different options and pretty much 
most of the options out there are car based. Some of them are longer release or whatever. And so I found a fuel called Perpetuum, which is made by Hammer Nutrition, and they have a full macro. So it's protein, fats, and carbs. And for some reason, that works better for me. But I think nutrition is very, very personal, and you have to practice. So I practiced it on my long runs, and then I even tried it out during quality workouts to make sure it didn't make me sick in my stomach when I was running at faster paces. And it didn't. I've got a pretty strong stomach, but you just never know how things are going to affect you. So I... I figured out how to mix it. You can you can put a whole bunch of scoops in there, and then it tells you how much water to add. And so I fit basically enough fuel for a four-hour marathon and carried it in Houston. And I figured out that I needed to drink, the way I had it diluted, three big gulps of it about every 30 minutes. So during the race, I just focused on at the hour and the half hour, I needed to take my fuel and then at the 15 minutes and the 45 minutes, I needed to make sure I got water. And so I had carried water on my person and I also used the water stops. And in fact, I used them even more than I thought I was going to just because it was a, it was a pretty warm day. So basically I took water every chance I could get. And I was glad I was carrying water too. I know maybe real runners don't carry their own water, carry their own fuel, but that's another thing just a little side note, I just decided I didn't care what other runners did. I was going to do what worked for me. And so that change in nutrition really made a difference. I feel like in this race, I had everything I needed. I felt energized. I felt strong the entire race. And I know that some of it was due to mental factors and other factors, but it was a hot day and that, that fuel did not let me down. Yeah. So tell us more, you know, when we had, we used to sell Perpetuum when I, when we had our retail store and, and it was primarily a product that we would see ultra trail runners using, not a lot of people doing road marathons with it. So give us a little more detail. It's a powder, you mix in water. It's a powder and they, they recommend two scoops for every hour of exercise. And so I called them to basically you could, they're, it's a very good company. You can call them. They have very knowledgeable people to answer the phone. So I talked to this guy who, by the way, sounded like Ryan Hall. <laughs> I talked to him for about 15 or 20 minutes, like asking him all my questions, asking and telling him how much I weighed, how old I was, how much I thought, you know, I needed. And so he told me how to put in, put the scoops in. So I had like, probably six scoops in with 10 ounces. So it's pretty thick, but it wasn't too thick. Um, and then I carried that in a, a bottle, a 10 ounce bottle. And then I had a little small flask where I put the, the remainder amount so I could get through four hours of, of, of fuel. But the, the flavor I chose was cafe latte, which actually also has some caffeine in it, which I feel like I do pretty well with the chew with the chews or the gels that have caffeine so i wanted a little bit of caffeine and it's not a lot but i think that helped me as well and you were taking three gulps every 30 minutes or so yeah that's what i figured out basically i would on runs on long runs i would dilute it to the amount and then kind of divide the bottle in my mind <laughs> how much i needed to drink at each at each hour or half hour 
and just judged it based on how much was left in the bottle. And it seemed to work pretty well. Also, it made the race go by really fast because it occupied my mind trying to make sure I was drinking when I was supposed to. And I would look at my watch and I'd see, okay, it's six minutes till the hour. That means I could, I get to drink in six, <laughs> six minutes. Those little mind games helped me uh, not focus on the wrong things during a race. Yep. Yeah, I think I love this one because it's a, it's a unique solution. I haven't seen a lot of road marathoners go this path with Perpetuum. So there may be others out there that have struggled with the traditional options that may want to try this. But also, I think the other two lessons here, one were that you practice it a lot. I know, yeah. you know, in, in prep, talking to you about your long runs, you're always experimenting with it, playing with the formula making sure it worked for you, checking the box on those long runs, knowing that, okay, everything's still working so that by the time you got to race day, there were no doubts and questions about what you needed to do. And two, you all, you're also very precise about it. And I think sometimes, especially those that struggle more with getting the right formula, maybe aren't willing to be as precise as they need to be about exactly what amounts they're getting and at what frequency when that can be really important for some people. And so you had it, you had the formula dialed in exactly the right number of gulps, the right timing, the right concentration in your bottle of perpetuum and so forth. And that ultimately is what led you to success because you dug into the details and you weren't afraid to ask questions, find answers, experiment, and ultimately find that formula that is going to be unique for you. But I think others could learn from that willingness to dig into the precision of it. Absolutely. It's just like, are you going to leave the fate of your race to chance? It's just, my husband always says, are you going to leave the fate of the game up to a kicker? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just like, you don't want to do that. You can control this. <laughs> right. so you might as well. No doubt. All right. That's number two, dialed in nutrition. What's number three? Number three is I managed my summer a lot differently this year. First of all, I chose routes and they were often boring and they were often like a 5K loop, but they were in the shade. And I refused to run in in the sun the summer. And I mean, even when you start at 6 a.m. here, it's already sunny. So I... You live in in Tyler, Texas, East Texas, so... Nice and warm and humid, for sure. Texas, yes, Texas heat and humidity. And in the shade, I ran those runs in the shade, even if it was tons of loops, and I refilled with ice water. That seemed to help. I'm 45 years old, and it seems like every year the summer gets harder and harder to manage. And so the ice water seemed to help cool me down. I adjusted my paces, as I always have done in the summer, but I'd religiously stuck to them. I didn't allow my brain to think, well, gosh, if it was 50 degrees, you would be running X speed instead of Y speed. I ran by time instead of mileage. So I stopped looking at how many miles a week I was running. And if it was a medium long day, it was 100 minutes. And that was it. Run was over at 100 minutes. Even if I was almost to the house, I would just stop and walk it in because once you're too hot, it just, it doesn't do you any good to keep going. I did all my recovery runs as much as it pains me to say, I did them all on the treadmill because it's a little bit cooler and a lot less humid in the house. 
And um, and one thing kind of related to this, but race week, we, we, we could tell it was possibly going to be a little bit warm at Houston. And, and it had been pretty warm here all winter up until this week. But uh, I ran in the afternoon even that week just so it would be warmer. And I don't think I probably gained a physiological benefit, but I think I gained maybe a small mental benefit from not running in the 40 degree mornings because those are my favorite days. But I think the managing that summer differently and then allowing race week to be a little bit tweaked so that I could manage the heat, I think that made a huge difference. Yeah, I love this one. And I think the broad application here is that there's windows of training for all of us that we just don't enjoy for whatever reason. And it might be a weather factor, but it might be other factors as well. And so the point here is be willing to adjust, make changes so that you can make it tolerable. I mean, I remember us having conversations with you saying, I just don't know if I can do it anymore. I don't know if I can train through another Texas summer. What am I going to do? But I also know that you knew how important that was, that consistency in order to get a goal like this one. And I love the fact that you, you played with it, you experimented, you made it work. You found the right variables to adjust, to make it tolerable. And from what I understand, having talked to you during this window, you were crushing workouts. Everything was going way better than expected with just these relatively nominal changes. Yes. And I think it goes back again to, well, maybe real runners don't run loops in the shade in the summer. Again, you just have to let go of what you think a real runner does or <laughs> doesn't do. So, the, yeah. But you mentioned the time thing again, and I, I want to stress that point because especially around here, but I think more and more throughout the country as we get warmer summers is People are always looking at that pace on their watch in the summer and thinking, I should be going faster and wanting to press the paces they might run in the winter, which might actually put them in the wrong aerobic development zone, which might actually put more stress on their body instead of just letting go of it all, switching perhaps to focus on time like you did, letting the pace be what it's going to be because it might be 30, 45, maybe even a minute per mile slower in the summer at similar efforts and let it go. But it's very hard for people to do that. It is. And it was another thing where effort is king and you have to trust it. And it's really hard to do. But again, if you've tried everything else, then you're willing sometimes to, <laughs> to do the thing that's Fine. hard to do. Finally. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It takes me a minute. <laughs> but I also want to point out, you know, and, and we'll get to the journey here because you had some misses before you got the big goal, several actually. And the journey, even in those prior summers, all of it mattered, right? All of it was contributing to this ultimate outcome. But but you learned a little bit each year and you got better along the way. So there's nothing wrong with that. That's right. All right, number three, you adjusted for the summer conditions, made it work for you. What's number four? Number four, and I don't know how you're going to feel about this. Uh And so let me just, let me just uh, explain myself. And then (laughs) um, I closed all of my long runs. Now, when we say we have clothes, like sometimes you prescribe a close and that's, 
that's a little different than what I'm talking about here. I basically, I negative split all my long runs from right. February on. And you talked a little bit about it on a podcast about making runs progress. And so that's what I'm talking about. Yep. I started all my negative runs so slow that by the end, I was just cruising and, and each mile sped up maybe from about three or four miles out. So it, it was not hard to do. It was not something where like I was closing to, to a hard effort. It was just that I would watch my heart rate, the whole run and keep it under 150. And, and in the summer that was a little bit higher sometimes, but until the last three or four miles, and then I would stop looking at my pace. I would like, stop looking at my heart rate and I would just kind of go as it felt good. So I'm not talking about like I've sped up to a certain effort. I just closed. I taught my brain that we finished fast. We finished faster than we start. And so that was, I made, I stayed in control. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't finish bent over any run at all. And on the days where you prescribed to close, I definitely paid attention a little bit more. But if you look, go back to and look at all my long runs in 2020, Two, nearly every single one of them had a progressive finish. Sometimes it was a lot quicker than others, but I just stayed with what felt. It still had to feel easy pace. It still had to feel good, but yeah. I closed all my long runs. Yeah. I mean, that to me is just good run management. And yeah, I believe everything should be done in progression that Coach John Strupp Kind of taught me that principle in workouts, in runs. But yeah, you should be starting slower, warming into the run, letting it come to you as your body warms into it. If all is going well, then that should continue in subtle ways throughout the run. You don't want to be suffering and slowing down at the end of these runs. But that can happen, certainly. We all have bad days, bad long runs. But if you manage the early part of the run well, Ideally, you should be able to finish well, finish strong without taxing the system or getting into a pace that's too fast for the right capacity building aerobic development that we try to get on long runs. So I'm cool with that. But okay. with the obvious caveats that it's about, it's, le- it's more about managing the totality of the run. And, and, you know, like when I, I had COVID in the fall and so coming back from that on long runs, I obviously kept it a lot easier, but I, I will say it translated great on race day because it was very, I felt very powerful when we were running in the marathon and my teammate Mike was running with me and he would say, okay, we're a little fast. It was, it made me feel so powerful to go, oh, I need to slow down. Like, to tell yourself in a marathon where you're going for a goal, you have the control, you can slow it down that it's just really empowering to, to do that. And, and to do that every long run, it, instead of getting swept away into something, especially if you're with a group getting swept up into somewhere you don't need to be. Right. And I think the important elements here, because, you know, people latch onto anything that they hear on this, if they like it and they'll, take it the wrong direction. <laughs> I think the important elements that we're talking about here is starting slow enough, right? Everybody wants to know how fast should I run in my long runs? And I'll tell them my general rule of thumb, I'm at least a minute per mile slower than marathon pace. And they'll want to start there, right? And hold that the entire time. That's not what you're talking about. You're talking no, about no, maybe no. two minutes slower 
and then letting it come to you as your body warms into it and letting that pace evolve naturally as you get into the rhythm of the run. That's really what we're talking about here. And so it's to me as much about managing the front part of the run and middle of the run as it is about what you're doing at the end, because you just, you gave yourself room to get to that place where you're staying in that right aerobic capacity zone, probably still at least a minute slower than marathon pace, but you gave yourself space to get there as your body eased into it, warmed up as you found a rhythm along the way. And I know you're watching, you know, you're talking about watching heart rate and all of that to calibrate too. So you're making sure that it's all feeding the right system versus, Oh, I'm just trying to go fast to go fast. Right. And, and for me, that meant sometimes the first miles, 11, 11, 15, I mean, slow. Yep. Slow for you. Slow for me. Yep. So, okay. Number four, giving that space for progression on easy runs. I'm cool with that. What about number five? Number five. And this was just a little thing, just a small little nuance that I added, but I really think it helped. So I've really been very consistent in strength training twice a week for years. I was a personal trainer. So that's something that becomes pretty easy to me. But I did add plyometrics into my strength workouts very precisely, uh, very intentionally once a week, uh, doing things like jumping lunges, single leg hops, split box jumps, squat to jump. So some things one-legged, some things two-legged, nothing crazy, nothing that was going to hurt me, but just consistent uh, plyometrics. And that's just, that's just a change I had. Yeah. And I, also added drills on um, quality workout days. So to warm up. Yeah, I mean, skip. basically that all falls in the category of working on basic, basic athleticism. And yes. I think one of the challenges as we age is that our, our muscles switch more from, or our fast twitch, remaining fast twitch muscles start to switch over to slow twitch and we, we lose that that raw power and athleticism that we might have at younger age and everybody has a different mix there. So it's all going to be personal, but that, but that is a way to keep it, but it has to be done cautiously for sure. I've done, I've been doing some of that work with my trainer and I can tell you the first several sessions of doing stuff like that, we were just focused on landing mechanics, not even really trying to do anything too big or powerful because I, I was so out of practice with it. And I used to play, I played club volleyball and in college, I used to jump all the time as an athlete playing soccer and volleyball. But now as a 43 year old, I am out of practice on my jumping and out of practice on my landing mechanics. So he's like, all right, we've got some work to do to get you back to a place where you can land safely and protect your joints and do all things the right way. So I think the caveat here is that you've got to be able to do it with either supervision or the knowledge like you have to be able to do it safely before you can really start to take that further. Yes. And I'll just say, just if, if someone's looking for a place to start, start two-legged, like jump, just squat down, jump as high as you can. You really probably can't get hurt doing that. And then start up on a step and like a small step and just land on one foot and try to balance. And that's just that those little things will help get those 
soft tissues, not just the muscles, but the ligaments, tendons, all those things strengthened so that it can handle that load. But yes, cautious and probably not a bad idea to get a trainer or someone that can guide you. Yep. <laughs> now, one thing I would say is that you would, you were going to get this goal regardless of adding that work. So, but that doesn't diminish it. I just am curious what you may have noticed in terms of the differences from a training perspective by adding in that work. Um, I think I just feel a little stronger. I feel like I get a little more power. And again, it, yeah, it may not have made a difference at all <laughs> as far as running a marathon, but I think anytime you feel stronger, that's, that's probably a big part of it is just feeling, feeling yeah. like you can do it. Feeling Feels like confidence. Can... Yeah. Which is a good segue to the next yes. five on the mental side. Uh, before we get there, I want to talk about my partnership with Athletic Greens. I've been working with them for about seven months now, taking their product daily. Typically take it after my workout, before my morning breakfast. It's a powder you mix in water and drink back. It has this light, smooth, tropical flavor. Tastes really good and is a perfect way to start my day with all the multivitamins I need, plus adaptogens, a superfood complex, prebiotics, probiotics to help with digestive health, all of the things you need to start your day in the right way. You've probably seen it recommended by professional athletes. They're also a climate neutral certified company and they donate a bit of every purchase to help get nutritious food to kids in need, including no kid hungry here in the United States. Costs less than a cup of coffee per day. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash running rogue. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash running rogue to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Okay, let's get back to Lori's list. We're up with the next five on mental. So we'll... What's number one there? These are the big ones. I think more than anything physical, a lot of what I was struggling with was mental. And I said something earlier, but basically after I got 354 at Houston in 2019, I thought, wow, I, I could get a Boston qualifier. And so that, that became the goal at that point. And I really thought, that I was going to get it later that year in 2019. I think I just needed to go from, well, let's see, I hadn't aged up yet, so maybe not. But I was shooting for 350 at uh, Bryan College Station Marathon at the end of 2019. So had another full year of training, basically. Um, and I did worse. So I got 359. And that was a warm day and this and that. But anyway, I didn't get it. Then... Then that was 2019. Then in 2020, of course, that's when the world shut down. I trained for Bryan College Station Marathon because it was one of the few marathons that said they were going to continue and that they were still going to have their race. And three weeks out, after all the training was done and I was into taper, they canceled it. So there wasn't a marathon in 2020. And then 2021, in November, 
I ran a marathon in Arkansas in November. And so the goal there was three, actually my goal was 344. I don't know if you remember that or not, Yeah. but I got a 358 and that was a tough day for several reasons, but I didn't get it. So I'd had this goal multiple times. And so it was just every single time I didn't get my goal, it got harder and harder to deal with. And so the first, the first mental change was I let go. That was the number one hardest thing to do, but it made the biggest difference. I don't uh, do New Year's resolutions, but I do choose a word for the year and sort of it kind of, it's just my focus for the year, not just in running, but in life. And so my word for 2023 was surrender. And so this is one of the things that I surrendered was just, I'm surrendering this goal. I know it's going to happen eventually, but I let go. And so it's just really hard to do when you've had the same goal for four cycles. <laughs> um, but I gave it up. So that was number one. I let yep. go. Well, well, one thing I want to point out too, is that another physical thing towards getting this goal was four, five, almost five years of consistent work building yes. towards races. Because, you know, that along with going slow probably are at the top of the list of you were just consistently going at it, even though you didn't get it every time you kept doing the work, kept putting together cycles. You're also putting together different distance cycles, not just marathon cycles during that time as well. So you're working the full end of the range. I think we had a 5k PR along the way. We had other things happening as well, in addition to this marathon goal. So want to make sure that that was highlighted. And then in terms of this, I think it's, it's really interesting that sometimes we get in these places where we're pressing so hard to get something that we want that we don't, that we mess it up, mm-hmm. that we want it almost too badly. We start to press too much that we can't surrender to the things that we need to do. We just end up pressing, pressing too much. And so sometimes when people let go of a goal is when they actually, when it actually comes back to them. And that's not to say you let go as in you didn't think it was possible, but you just stopped pressing. And that's really hard for someone with my personality to do. (laughs) Talk about that part. (laughs) Again, you have to get to the place where you've tried everything else. So you might as well try this. Um, And I think that that pressure well, that brings me kind of right into my second point is I gave myself an easier goal. So that's number two in workouts. So in workouts, I started giving myself an easier goal. We train on a three pace, three pace range in a three pace range. And so I started telling myself the goal was to hit the slow end in every workout. This is, this is my goal, hit the slow end of the range And so that way I had a lot more wins and workouts, but what it also did, and you're going to smile at your your coaching self is going to smile at this, but it allowed all my workouts to progress. So that's something I've never been able to do whenever you say, okay, we're doing 12, 400s and want you to progress. I always went too fast at the start and then I had nowhere to go. And so by giving myself the slow goal, you know, slow and air quotes goal, then I would, I would hit almost every workout because, 
you should hit the workout that your body allows for that day, right? And so some days, the slower end of your pace range is where you're, what you're ready for, or the, what the conditions dictate. And because I did that, I had a lot more wins. And because I was winning a lot more, then I wasn't as critical of myself. So I tend to be highly critical of myself and always thinking, oh, you should have done more, you should have done more, you should have done more. Well, it just kind of happened every workout because I was going for the slow goal. I would hit faster than that in nearly every workout. And so I had way more fun <laughs> this last fall because I was way more successful, even though I really wasn't changing at all what I was doing, my perspective changed. And so for race day, I decided 350 would be my goal, even though my previous two marathons my goal was faster than that but with that slower goal it took the pressure off and then I knew that even if it was a bad day I would hit my BQ and if I needed a cushion then I could go back and get a cushion later because I had already let go of the main goal of getting that Boston with the, with the cushion yeah. so it just helped me take the pressure off and it helped my high pressure self my highly critical self just relax. And I just, I had way more fun. And I think if, if you're having fun, you're going to be more successful. And so yeah. for those people that are uptight, like me, loosen up and just have fun. <laughs> I mean, I think there's interesting context here in terms of your sport journey, because as a gymnast, you're taught that perfection is the goal, right? I mean, I think yeah. you, you were still operating in the day of perfect tens back yes <laughs> back then when before they had these weird scale point scales now so you know perfection was the goal and if there was even a, a little wobble or a tiny hop or step on the landing or whatever it may be that was in a sense failure and so you've had this idea of perfection ingrained into you from a sporting perspective for so long and and really in the running context that can be dangerous. I mean, certainly precision around doing the work and being able to stick to a plan and all of that is important, but there's so much freedom within the framework like you're describing. And so this one to me is almost the physical and a mental piece mm -hmm. to one, realize that success on a given day is more than running a specific pace. You know, we give, I give training paces. If I say, for example, go run half marathon pace on a given day, that's to calibrate. That's to get you in the right aerobic development zone to get a certain physiological benefit. But the body doesn't know the difference between eight minutes per mile and eight Oh five per mile in terms of getting that physiological benefit. So as you're alluding, there's just, there's a range of success where you can claim victory regardless of what you think your specific half marathon pace might be. And so in our, in our vernacular, we use ranges typically. And you were, for example, shooting for a 350, then you might train in pace, pace ranges, equivalent pace ranges between 345 and 355. And anything in that range on a given day is going to be successful, be able to claim as success. And that unlocks flexibility to adjust based on how you feel. It unlocks the ability to claim success regardless of how things might go on a given day. And it also gives you that ability to, as you said, progress, start slower, work down because that's such an important skill to learn in workouts. 
Yeah, and in that Matt Fitzgerald's book, another thing it talks about is the it, well, you have to get out of the all or nothing mindset. You're still getting training benefits if you go for it, and maybe you don't quite make it. That that it's still it's still a benefit, and so we have to get out of this pass fail mindset. Like right. I do it do it all and it's great or I do I miss one little thing and, and that's it it's over that for me was a hard kind of mindset to get out of this all or nothing type mindset but you're right the body doesn't know pace and it just knows effort right that seems to be a common theme here with this so you were stacking up wins instead of Stack. L's I think there's also in that it's it's sort of the the Kara Goucher gratitude journal idea that you can claim success, you can be thankful for something on any run, any workout. And too often we spend time wanting to beat ourselves up or think about how we could have done something better versus and that's okay to learn, but but you really want to camp out and live in the gratitude space, the this is working space, the I'm having success space, because that's what's going to help you build that belief. And so that's all I think also what this did for you. Yes. And I do have a gratitude journal, not just for running, but for life. <laughs> and it is helpful. Yeah. <laughs> I write in it every morning. Love it. All, all right, right. Number two, stacking up wins. What's number three? Number three is I had a range for race day. So instead of a goal marathon goal pace on race day. I went into race weekend, not knowing what my MGP was going to be. So my training indicated that 825 MGP was possible. Uh, I often fell into an 825 pace when I was not really paying attention and trying to go marathon pace. Often my workouts ended up there. So I knew that that was possible. And 8.45 pace would still get me my goal. So I knew that if I was anywhere in that range, I would still get my goal. And at that point, 8.45 felt so easy to me. It felt too slow almost, right? So I knew, again, if it was a bad day, I could still get my goal. And so helping having that range helped me not worry about the weather so much. So I'm usually the person that's on the weather app 20 times a day leading up to the race. And I just... I let that go. I did not waste any energy, mental or physical, worrying about the weather because I can't control it anyway. You told me the night before, go to plan. The weather's going to be fine. And it really kind of wasn't fine because you're not a weatherman and you know, the weatherman can't even tell what it's going to be. But it was a little warm that day. But I had already decided I was just going to find the groove that felt good and felt sustainable. And so I wasn't married to that exact time. And I also knew that if I wasn't married to the time, it would be easier to adjust it if I needed to, like, physically say, okay, it's hot. I'm going to slow down. So I think just for me and my personality, going into race day with a range was a lot more helpful than going into race day saying, I'm going to run 835 pace. I think if I had gone into race day with that goal, it would have been too much pressure and I would have messed it up somehow. So for me, going into race day with a range was a lot more helpful. Yeah, and a fairly narrow range. But I, I do think, especially for experienced marathoners, that's one thing that we we don't 
think about is that when you've done it enough, you kind of know what marathon rhythm should feel like. And on a day in Houston that was warm and especially on a course in Houston, that's very flat where you can truly dial into one rhythm and, and really hold that pretty precisely for as long as possible. We often neglect that, that feedback loop of, all right, where's the groove? Where's the rhythm versus we're letting the watch dictate and tell us what we should be doing versus letting our body and our rhythm and how we're feeling dictate it. And then the watch is just the outcome. So I like the fact that you flipped that on its head. And and we, we set the plan to, to go first four to five miles to get down to race pace. And at that point I was running with my teammate who was doing the half marathon and and I told him, I said, I think I can run this pace all day. Like, it felt that good. So I knew that that, that was going to be sustainable. And that, that was empowering. It really helped. Yep. Confident. Kind of gets back to the surrender point. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're surrendering to the idea of perfection, essentially. And, letting... and, and effort. you're thinking about that effort. Like, yep. I feel I can sustain this effort for three plus hours. And spoiler, you did. And it did. <laughs> so, all right. So number three, working in the range, having flexibility. What about number four? Number four, I raced with no negativity. And for me, this was the very first time I've done any race of any distance without my thoughts going dark. And so every race I've ever done, 5K, 10K, 15K, half marathon, there's always points where I say, why am I doing this? I hate this. I hate racing. I suck at this. I should just train and not race. Very dark. And it's not helpful. You are not strong in your body when your mind is telling you, you hate what you're doing. Um, I listened to a really helpful uh, run free podcast that Ryan Hall did right before the race. And he talks about having the attitude of I get to do this. <laughs> like, and I don't know why that's such a big change in my brain, but no one is making me do this. I get to do this. And just that attitude of I get to be here, I get to do this, that sort of sent me back to my why and helped me refocus back in on my why, which is why did I start marathon? Why did I start this marathon journey in the first place? And for me is all centered around the gratitude that I have for a healthy body. And I had a bunch of years where I didn't have healthy body. I didn't have energy. I had pain and, and I didn't think I would ever be able to do something like a marathon. And so that's what started me to running is that I'm grateful that I have this body. I get to do this. And so there's always, I mean, there's no guarantee that I will always feel this good. There's no guarantee tomorrow that I'll be able to run. So I just had that gratitude. I was able to smile. I think in almost every race photo, I'm smiling, which is hilarious because I usually look like I'm on a death (laughs) mark. And it wasn't a fake smile. I just, the crowd, the crowd is great in Houston. I don't remember the crowd from 2019. I think I had earphones in and so I couldn't hear them, but people are calling your name. I just really use the energy of the crowd. I really use the idea that you've said before about, sending a message on those timing mats, thinking about your family, your friends, your teammates that are following you. I just begin to really look forward to the timing mats because 
everybody knew I'd had quite a few bad races in a row. And so it was like, I was sending them that message, like, I'm strong, I'm doing this. I'm powerful. I'm, I'm on the course looking for my husband where he tells me he's going to be about mile 18. And usually he gets the thumbs down that things are not going well. And he's worried about me because he's worried how he's going to talk me off the roof. If I don't, <laughs> if I have another bad race anyway, just seeing him, just everything, just, I just felt grateful the entire race. And I just kept thinking about that. And my thoughts never went dark. I've, I can't even say I've ever had an extended <laughs> three hour period in my day, just regular day that I haven't had dark thoughts or negative thoughts. So it was just, it was just the perfect, the perfect day with perfect focus. And so that why really bought, brought me around to being able to race with a positive mindset. Yeah, it's so important reprogramming our brain to we're never going to get rid of the negative or doubting thoughts but can make them a smaller percentage of the pie for sure and, and i had a plan had they gone dark i mean i was i was ready for that too like i had already thought about i was gonna think about the picture of our sweet dog or think yeah. about different things. I had already like a, an arsenal of things that I was going to think about to change my thoughts when they went negative, but I never even had to do that. So it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. I saw you at mile 24 and a half to run with you for a bit. And normally at that point in the marathon, you don't see people smiling. Do you also don't typically see that on a warmish day for marathoning in Houston? And I think you may have been the only one, if I'm honest, uh, that was smiling ear to ear. So as I was looking for you in the crowd, I noticed your smile first. I'm like, oh, that's Lori. Didn't expect to see a literally beaming ear to ear smile at mile 24 and a half before I even saw you. That was before I think I had even entered your view. So it wasn't like you were smiling at seeing me. You were just smiling. And uh, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool that late in the marathon. I was running like like just a grin. <laughs> I don't know, like people in the crowd were saying, that's a great smile, keep smiling. And I was just, I was having that much fun. It was yeah. truly, it was truly a, a real genuine smile. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, that we get to do this. I remember talking to our group in Indianapolis before the race, knowing that the weather was going to be tough there with wind and rain and warmer than expected temps and... That was one of the things I reminded them. Like, this is what you want. This is what you asked for is to put yourself in these situations to see what you're made of and don't back down from that. Right. I mean, this is what you asked for. This is what you've trained for. And so cool that you got to fully embrace that on race it was, day. It was fun. All right. That's number four. What's number five on the mental side? Number five was the pre-race report. So I have a five-year journal and each day, like this is February 1st, 2023, there's a, there's about three lines. And so I can see, I'm in the, I'm, on, I'm on the fifth year of this particular journal. So I can see everything from the previous four years on that day. So leading up to the Houston marathon in 2019, I had written some pre-race reflections you had encouraged me just to think about how far i had come before my race in 2019 and i had come really far i had started 
the Renegades and I was running about 25 miles a week. I was running three or four days a week. And I was, I changed that to be, I was a six day a week runner. I was running 40 to 45 miles a week. I'd done all these workouts, just had come so far. And looking back at that, it was really helpful because I did it again looking at how far the 2019 Lori had come to the 2023 Lori, or yes. So the four years ago, Lori, um, now I run, I ran easily 60 mile weeks this fall and having 10 mile medium long runs. And I actually had confidence in workouts. I didn't stay the night, <laughs> stay up the night before worried about it. Uh, just to see how far I'd come in those four years. And the 2019 Lori would have never believed where the 2023 Lori was going to be. And so that was just really a cool, just seeing those words I had written uh, four years before. And so when I was sitting there doing that, I went, before I went to bed, I just decided I had already won no matter what the clock said the next day. And I think that was the ultimate moment that I really did surrender. I really did feel grateful. I knew that I had already won. And so going into that race, feeling like I'd already won, that enabled me to, to run fearlessly. I've always been a fearful racer and just worried about what could happen or worried about the pain I was going to feel. And um, I ran fear, fearlessly in, in the race plan. We had planned for me to speed up at mile 22. And by mile 19, I knew I had my goal. And I was feeling great, but I've done enough marathons to know this was my seventh that you can feel great at 19 and still fall apart. So out of respect for the marathon, I, I held that intention and then I kept, I kept my pace steady, didn't speed up until mile 21. And I said, you know what, <laughs> I've got this, let's go. That was my fastest mile of the race. I think I ran that mile at 10K pace. I think, I think I ran it like a 745 mile. Um, so I reined myself in when I saw that split. I was like, hold, hold on. You can't. <laughs> Not <laughs> yet. Sustain hold that on. Yeah. But I reined that in and I still was cruising. And it's funny because I remember not during the race, but after the race, thinking back to, oh my gracious, there were so many people bent over. I saw people vomiting. I saw people cramping and I was just cruising past them with, with like ease. And anyway, it was just, it was just this almost out of body experience. Like I was watching a movie of people struggling and I was just going. And so the crowd, you know, is cheering and there's more and more people the closer to the finish you get. And so I started telling people in the crowd, I'm getting my BQ today. They probably thought I was ridiculous, but I wasn't bragging. I was so happy and so grateful and just celebrating with them. I felt like they were all cheering for me and we were celebrating mm. together. And then you jumped in and I remember... I think I asked you, why are you running so fast? <laughs> but you you kind of helped me, you know, continue that momentum and nothing hurt until that last mile. Not nothing hurt during that race. My feet didn't hurt. My nothing tightened up, nothing cramped, didn't get a side stitch. That last mile was a struggle, but I was even really proud of that because 
that meant I left it all out there. There was, there was nothing left. And then I crossed that finish line and just busted into tears. And about three or four people asked me if I needed medical. And I was like, no, I'm just really happy. I finally got my goal. <laughs> and then made it um, to the reunion area where my husband was and for my teammates. And everybody was in tears. And that was just one of the most special moments just in my life, really, that it was just four years of hard work and I did it and they were there and everybody was celebrating and we were hugging. And anyway, it was a victory that took, you know, four years. And I think if it had taken five or six, it would have still been worth it, but it was just very sweet. It was just one of the greatest moments. And I'm just so grateful to my teammates and to my husband and my family for, you know, listening to me and <laughs> encouraging me and, um, anyway, that yeah. is a great day. 345 on the nose, five minute BQ buffer, three to four minute negative split. I haven't done the exact math, but started slow, finished fast, exactly textbook marathoning. So all around success and pretty cool to see i think i was i'm lucky to have an advanced copy of des linden's book go get that pre-ordered highly recommend it's amazing one of the things she talks about after her boston win in 2018 having been so close in 2011 when she lost by two seconds on boylston street talks about how much more meaningful the win was because of the ups and downs along the way to get there. And I think that's pretty, pretty true for you here too, is the, the up and down journey of it all makes it even sweeter. Absolutely. It was my first negative split marathon. So I, I was, I was just over the moon. Yep. So a couple of notes I want to mention one, talk about Brittany, your teammate on the renegades question oh, for the day which that sure. also kind of helped solidify that last that mindset and so Brittany uh is one of our renegade teammates from washington and it's important to note that most of us have never met in person but we've developed these friendships like true friendships over the years and so Brittany was running the full marathon that day and Brittany posted her her race plan, we post our race plans to our uh, platform so that our teammates know what we're doing and they can give suggestions or advice or just encouragement. So it, Brittany had posted her race plan and in, in, in that race plan, she said, but what if, what if, what if everything is just totally fine? And that statement hit me in a way that my nervous, fearful self it just struck a chord with me. And so I kind of grabbed a hold of that. And, you know, what if, what if it's hot? What if it's humid? What if the wind is, is blowing? And, and just every time my mind would start going into somewhere negative before the race, but what if it's just totally fine? <laughs> and so I'm grateful to Brittany for that because that became sort of my mantra for the, for the whole experience. And Brittany had a goal of 
430 marathon. And so I was ahead of her on the course. I was in a corral. And um, so I knew I was ahead of her and I knew, and she had said, you know, I'm going to be thinking about you. And I told her I would be thinking about her. And, and I knew that I might get to a point in the race where I wouldn't feel strong and I wouldn't want to do it for myself, but I could do it for someone else. And so that was one of the things that was fueling me was I've got to be strong for Brittany and I've got to send Brittany all that power. And just, it just, I felt like a responsibility to be strong for Brittany. And that, that helped me on the course that day, most certainly. And Brittany got her goal. She, she's from Washington. So it was even hotter for her. She was not, wasn't used to those temperatures. Yeah. But anyway, it was just really special watching her finish and knowing she got in right under that 430 mark. And yes, that was just another part of the weekend. That was it was just incredible. We had gotten to run together and have lunch together on Saturday. And yeah, Brittany's just I'm just really proud that I can talk about her without crying. <laughs> it <laughs> so was just, uh yeah, more than fine for both of you. More than fine. Which is cool. I also think that that would be number six on my list of the mental side is just you had a team. Yes. You had a team to support you. You had me in as a coach and brother. You had the team, the renegades there, not only running with you for part, but on the sides cheering, out there supporting, knowing that they were going to be at the finish line. I mean, I, I think that lifted you in a way that you didn't expect as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you said on our our team training podcast. This was, this was a team victory and it absolutely feels that way. I could go down a list of probably 30 or more people and tell you how each of them contributed to this win. Yeah. So cool. As I say, running is only a solo sport if you want it to be. And there's so much magic in the team part of it. And I love the fact that you guys felt connected on the course, even though you weren't running next to each other. I mean, that to me is, a, is, one element of doing races with groups that people don't often tap into is that that connection because yeah you're you're not next to each other but you're in the moment together in a way that's palpable if you really tap into it it was special so here you are boston qualifier and then some you'll get to do boston 2024 which will be exciting but you know, to me, this conversation is so cool, not only because I'm your brother, I'm very, very proud of you. Also, because I think you represent the story of so many people that might listen, people that maybe didn't define themselves as runners at one time. You know, you have, you probably still struggle embracing the label of fast in the context of your running. But here you are, a Boston qualifier by by every definition fast. And as everybody knows, I I say there's no slow, only degrees of fast, but it's harder It's harder to embrace that concept. And I feel like you're finally getting there. But you're someone who's doubted your speed and whether or not you're fast, whether or not you're worthy of these types of goals. But to overcome those things, you did the work physically, you've evolved mentally, you went and went for it. You stubbed your toe. You didn't get your goal several times. You had races not go your way, but you just kept doing the work. You kept coming back to it. And then you got the sweet victory. And so it's to me just a perfect picture 
of what so many people can relate to, whether Boston's your goal or whether something else is your goal. And so now you get to be an inspiration to the thousands that listen. I just can't wait to go back out there and run a race. (laughs) (laughs) I am not a pretender. I really can do this. Well, you've always been fast in my book and always been worthy in my book. And so it's fun to have seen you develop that self-belief. And of course, now to have the validation that you wanted all along is, is pretty, pretty cool. And just very proud and happy that I could play a role. So thank you, Lori, for coming on and for sharing your journey. I appreciate it. For your huge contribution to all this. This has been amazing. And you know, it's not just about running. It's about life too. It's a very cool thing. No doubt. And shout out to the Renegades for helping us get there. All right. That will wrap this episode. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.